Hello, everybody. This is Criterion Cast. I am Trevor Barrett, and I'm here this morning with David Blakesley. David, how are you today? Oh, I'm I'm great. I what what day is it? Where are we? <laughs> yeah, I'm in a little <laughs> bit of a ambient, uh, tranquil, uh, metaphysical zone here as we are ready to open our little picnic basket and see what's inside. Yeah, is, is that um, in anticipation of Valentine's Day or? Oh yes, of course. Cupid is shooting <laughs> his arrows, and I'm happily on the receiving end. <laughs> yes. Well, listeners, we are recording this on Saturday, February 11th, and Valentine's Day is coming up quickly. So we thought that this morning we would talk about a great Valentine's Day movie, "Picnic at Hanging Rock" by Peter Weir. Uh, David, I chose this movie. Um, because it's one of my favorites in the collection, and I think that the addition that Criterion put out a few years ago when they made their dual-format upgrade is a stunner. I think it's one of the best additions in the Criterion collection. Um, So I'm ready to just heap praise on this film, but I haven't spoken with you. I don't know if you you like this film, if if you hate this film, if you're rather indifferent to it, but I think that you have alluded to the fact that it works on you because... You mentioned earlier that you've been watching it and you were in another zone, which is just what this film is <laughs> supposed to do to us, I think. Um, I, I wanted to just quickly, as Scott used to do, um, read the Criterion blurb to let people who maybe haven't heard it yet get a sense as to what this film is about. But it's going to be, I think, pretty soon, listeners, where we get into just talking about whatever we want to about the film Um, including spoilers, so we'll try to keep it spoiler-free for a few minutes, but just be warned, if you haven't seen Picnic at Hanging Rock and you want to view it without any of our our thoughts in your head without David and Trevor's voices influencing your your concept or perception of the film, um, you know, we're not going to be too sensitive to spoilers today. Uh, this is a film that I think demands to be, to be talked about freely and I'm, I'm excited to do that, David. Um, but here's how Criterion describes the film. Picnic at Hanging Rock. This sensual and striking chronicle of a disappearance and its aftermath put director Peter Weir on the map and helped usher in a new era of Australian cinema. Based on an acclaimed 1967 novel by Joan Lindsay, Picnic at Hanging Rock is set at the turn of the 20th century and concerns a small group of students from an all-female college who vanish along with the chaperone, while on a St. Valentine's Day outing. Less a mystery than a journey into the mystic, as well as an inquiry into issues of class and sexual repression in Australian society, Weir's gorgeous, disquieting film is a work of poetic horror whose secrets haunt viewers to this day. And I'll just attest to that. This is one of those films that keeps me up at night. If I if I watch it late at night, I can't go back to sleep. I've got to, I've got to sit there and kind of... Um, dream about it and and think about what it's doing and i love it but but david um i'm very curious to see uh what uh, get a general idea of what your experience with this film has been well it's been very positive i mean i guess i'll just kind of start with my history of the movie this is probably i don't know somewhere maybe 10 or more years ago um back in the I don't know if this is the early days of Netflix, or at least my early on in my experience as a Netflix subscriber. I believe that this film was uh, available on that service back in the mid-2000s sometime. And um, 
in fact, it might have been maybe the late 2000s because it was around the time that I was getting kind of deeper into my Criterion blogging and 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 I had not yet become Criterion complete and I did not yet own this DVD at the time. That was the only edition that was available. But on Netflix, I got one of those little internet updates that says, Disappearing Soon from Netflix and Picnic at Hanging Rock was one of those films that was about to expire. So I thought, well, I better go ahead and watch that. And so... Um, I I put it on and my wife and daughter were watching it with me and uh it was it, you know I mean it it has all the trappings of the kind of films that my, my wife and daughter love you know all these all these lovely young ladies and their Victorian era garb their dresses and their hats and their petticoats and you know the the uh, kind of the fine genteel setting of a girls college so we were all pretty intrigued but we had no idea what other than those front titles at the very beginning of the movie that kind of give that same, uh, you know, that same introduction that this is about a uh, a group of, of young women who disappeared while on a picnic at this uh, natural landmark in the hinterlands of Australia. So we were just kind of going along with it, and, you know, I guess we'll <laughs> just get into that same kind of spoiler territory, spoiler territory where it's never really explained exactly what happened. Uh, there are some developments that kind of clarify the fate of at least one of the disappearees. But, uh, you know, there's this big ambiguity that hovers over the whole thing and it, and it stays there through the entire runtime of the film. And so I was very intrigued and kind of bemused and, and uh, you know, somewhat, you know, stimulated by the whole eccentricity, I guess, if you will, because typically a film like this would have resolved the mystery and, whether it's a alien abduction or they fell into a big pit and their bones were found 40 years later by some spelunkers and hikers. Well, you know, something would have been said, but there's nothing like that. And so I think I think my wife and daughter were a little bit, you know, mystified <laughs> by it and a little bit like, well, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. They can't just leave us off the hook like that and, uh, you know, and just keep us hanging. And I was like, well, why not? Uh, that That's great. Isn't life often like that? We just sometimes just don't know what the rational explanation is, but we have to live through it and deal with it anyway. So, but yeah, and and um, my affection for this film has only grown uh, as I've had a chance to revisit it and see it in a vastly superior presentation uh, made possible, like you say, Trevor, uh, through this really splendid Criterion edition. So we'll we'll get into some of the you know, improvements, I guess, uh, a little bit later on in our conversation this morning, uh, because Criterion really did, you know, vault this thing from a barely sufficient, you know, entry into its collection, one of those early spine numbers to, uh, you know, a really marvelous, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, I guess, what do you call it? Sort of kind of a showcase for, for a pretty special film. Yeah. Yeah. The upgrade was, was remarkable, not just because it, it's a remarkable addition, but when you consider what the original DVD was like, that, uh, you know, like you say, barely presentable um, by the time they got around to upgrading this film. Um, I always kind of thought when it was upgraded that it would just be a quick upgrade and hopefully look a little bit better. But, you know, again, absolutely blown away by the improvement on it. And we'll talk about... Um, a little bit about Russell Boyd, the cinematography that he he performed on the film. I mean, it, it's there's some gorgeous moments. So at, whenever we're talking about that, just uh, know that it's Russell Boyd who 
who creates some of this mysticism, this this dreaminess within the film, the, because the film is very much almost from beginning to end a, a, a little bit. Well, I, I shouldn't say all, all the time because sometimes it's fairly stark and um, and fairly brittle um, than it is at the beginning where it's just kind of the soporific haze that is just really, really nice to experience. And, you know, it, it, it definitely works to put you in a bit of a haze. I remember the first time I was watching it, and I think it was probably about the same time you were, David. I, I watched it on Netflix, too. And I remember thinking, oh, I'll check out the first few minutes of this, see where it goes. You know, it was it was later at night, so I just thought, oh, I'm, I'm curious. And, you know, it didn't suck me in the way that a movie with a, with a, a certain kind of plot will, where you just kind of have to see what happens next. It just kind of sucked me in because it felt like a dream, you know. It felt it was it was just pulling me along with it, almost almost pulling me into a dream world. I remember watching the whole thing after and afterwards, thinking, "Wow, where did the time go?" That was, you know, a very quick. I think the film's about a hundred minutes or so, hundred and seven minutes, um, but it was very quick and and very enjoyable. So, so David, a few of the things that I wanted to talk about is is that dreamlike quality. Uh, in the film, when when I called you this morning, I brought this up a little bit before. You know, you mentioned that you were, you know, you didn't even realize it was time to record because you were kind of in a different zone, mesmerized. <laughs> yes. um, what? How does the film do this for you, and and why do you think it's doing it to you? Well, I think it is that it is that contrast between this uh, very you know kind of repressive, structured world of discipline and formality. And uh, you know rules and 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 constant supervision and and uh, just you know the the do's and don'ts. I mean, just an, an early scene as the as the girls are being dismissed uh, to go on the picnic by Mrs. Miss, Mrs. Appleyard, the the headmistress of uh, Appleyard College. This you know, they say it's a college. It's really more like a private high school. I think is probably how it would translate for American listeners, at least. These are these are teenagers. These are not you know you know late teens or early twenties that you might think of as college age. So, um, but she's she's telling the girls you know about their abilities and their privileges to go on the picnic, and she's giving very specific instructions about when they may take off their gloves. It's only after they <laughs> have taken the drag, the the little uh, you know the, the 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 coach that's taking them to the picnic grounds, which are you know, a couple hours away. It's actually a significant ride. That's not really made clear in the in the movie, but in the book, it's like a three hours uh, ride. You know, from from the college to the the little uh, mountain or, or or you know the, the hanging rock there. But but they can only take their gloves off after they've eluded the attentions of the boys and gentlemen who might otherwise think lascivious thoughts of these young ladies <laughs> and, and, you know, without without their gloved hands. You know, so it's like so that's that's the kind of the the context or the background of how you know rigidly controlled these young women's lives are. And of course, then they they have a chance to go visit this uh, exquisite natural landmark but it becomes something more than that as they are really uh loosed for a very you know what's supposed to be a very temporary uh sojourn away from uh the the tight controls that they live under into this uh momentary encounter with nature which uh in a sense kind of engulfs these these few 
brave young women who <laughs> decide they're going to uh, go their own way. They're going to step outside the lines a little bit. And, of course, the way it's filmed, the the music, and and the mystery, the allure of all of that is kind of the 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 haunting overshadowing that kind of suffuses the rest of the film because you know the 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 girls disappear fairly early on yeah and yeah. and then the rest of the film is how does this affect the lives of the survivors so to speak this isn't like a plane crash where everybody's gone through this trauma together it's just a, a few people have disappeared and now everybody else has to deal with the repercussions of that, and uh, yeah, and 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 it, it it touches the lives of people who are not even immediately connected with the college. There's the the two young men, Michael and Albert, who just catch a brief glimpse of these girls who are otherwise complete strangers. But Michael, in particular, this young kind of aristocrat in the making, has had this vision of. Uh, of Miranda, particularly the the kind of willowy blonde, uh, sort of the alpha female of the group, I guess. But she's alpha female in a way that is, you know, very soft. I mean, she's not a domineering, you know, queen bee type. She's just uh, she's she's almost uh, above everybody else. Right? She's, she's ethereal. She's, she's very nice to people. Oh yeah, she's sweet but, and she's lovely. Yeah. And, and she she's doesn't. A, she didn't get there by meanness. No, she no. got there by some other quality that is attractive to yeah. everybody <laughs> whether it's genetics because she is you know physically beautiful but there's something very ethereal and very winsome about her her spirit her 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 gentility and and um yeah and 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 of course again this this comes into how she's photographed and how she's framed and and the 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 cinematic aspects of of how she's just you know put out there as a character uh she becomes this this center of gravity um that is in stark contrast with the brutal solidity of these rocks these these incredibly dense and harsh and just almost wickedly primitive uh geological formations that are hard and unyielding and eternal and miranda is this wisp of of beauty and femininity that kind of sort of enters our lives and then disappears and we know that we had that experience that we had that encounter with this beautiful creature but now she's gone and what are we supposed to make of all that right yeah yep exactly i love how you put that a lot of the film is about the response of the community um you know there's something about these kinds of unsolved mysteries uh, the the film people get quite frustrated at it I think because there's no resolution, you know it it becomes unsatisfying. But and not every filmmaker can get away with this kind of ambiguity. Some of them you can tell it's just a trick or they didn't really have control of everything beforehand. Right, it's just a but, conceit. It's a it's yeah. a device that they're just gonna. I'm just gonna kind of mess with the heads of my viewers and haha, but. You know, yeah. it, you're right. It's it's a very much a tight wire act. It's like you can misstep, and all of a sudden you've just lost it, and now you're just in this, you know, category of pretentious, you know, pretenders, and and you're you're just you know kind of dinking around with this, and and I don't really appreciate being kind of played like that. 
by a director who kind of gets in over his head. But I don't really ever feel that. Maybe there are some out there who think that this is a bit of a overblown, you know, phantasm or something of that sort. But I, I, I don't feel that way, and and it is pretty impressive all all the more because the, Peter Weir at this time was a pretty young director who hadn't really done a whole lot to. Um, earn that lead credit peter weir's film of picnic <laughs> yes. at hanging rock like oh peter weir this is a peter weir film well <laughs> well hold on everything wait, wait, we gotta watch this well now who, who is this peter weir guy but he 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 pulled it off i think yeah i think so too he does a great job um from beginning to end of just controlling this and he he knew what he was doing it, you know it was deliberate to make sure that no solution was really available. Like this isn't a film that you can sit there and puzzle out and go, oh, this is what happened. He he deliberately gets away from it. There's an interview in Sight and Sound where he says, "We worked very hard at creating a hallucin." Well, he says an hallucinatory, mesmeric rhythm, so that you lost awareness of facts. You stopped adding things up and got into this enclosed atmosphere. I did everything in my power to hypnotize the audience away from the possibility of solutions. And, you know, again, this is just not a film that you can go, okay, this is what happened to the girls. It it completely avoids any type of solution. It's so much more about this is what happens to those who are left behind, I think. Um, You get these trans... um, these transportive figures, these 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 young girls, you know, who are who are, you know, sexually aware but not conscious. <laughs> you know, there's their their bodies are 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 sexual, but their minds have not um, really been allowed to to understand what that means. <clears throat> At the beginning of the film, you know, we're watching them. It's Valentine's Day, and they're handing valentines to each other in this all girls school. And they're reading poetry, and it's 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 rather beautiful, you know. And they're helping. They're they're all in their underwear, their undergarments from waking up. And I mean, that's still like from neck to toe. <laughs> exactly, up, you know? <laughs> exactly. And yet, and yet, it is it is alluring. I mean, yeah, it's of course, th- yes. they're they are beautiful, <laughs> and, and these these clothes, these things that they wear. Um, almost throughout the, maybe the exception being, you know, when they have their gloves on and are riding in the cart past, um, that uh, town of men or whatever. But for the most part, a lot of this film shows how this clothing, these things, these girls are supposed to do, um, you know, tying the girdles around them, um, how, and and I think it was, um, David Thompson's film uh, introduction where he talks about how, that particular moment where they're tying around each other's um, uh, corsets, girdle, there, corsets yeah. and things is a, a symbol of their sexuality and its oppression because it's a sexual scene. I mean, they, and, and oh, these yeah. girls are a little bit confused. Some of them are certainly um, attracted to one another sexually. Others of them are reading these these pick or these um, Valentine's Day cards as if they're from some man that they're imagining. But they don't have any experience with any of this. At least, at least a lot of them don't. You know, surely some of them have had something happen to them in their lives, um, <clears throat> just like that is the case today. But, but for the most part, everyone ignores that, 
and yet it's still a part of their refinement. I mean, this school is there to help refine these young women um, according to the moral standards at the time, and that included being alluring, being attractive, and being sexual for men, but not acknowledging that consciously, if there's any way to do that. Right, right. It is. It's it's this, uh, you know, kind of incredible sort of juggling type of thing where, uh, yeah, you're, you're put out there as this alluring, exquisite, a delicate feminine creature um who needs gloves when you pass them in i mean that's right that's part of how strange this is it's like you you need to wear these objects because you are an object and you need to cover yourself up which only really makes them more desirable well you know right. well, they're they're kind of kept out of view for a period of time until they're ready. I mean, it's the whole idea of the debutante. So like this, this exquisite creature has been brought out from her little cloister into the public setting where now she is an eligible young maiden and, and all, all the gentlemen can line up and try their hand to see who's going to be successful at wooing her. It's, it's a very, you know, regimented, uh, you know, ideal of, of how, male and female partnerships are are managed you know and the society has this vested interest in you know kind of keeping the women the young women from behind this kind of barrier so that they're not you know sort of taken advantage of or exploited or even allowed to develop along their own personal lines i mean they can't follow their own whims and and so that those those early scenes of sarah she's the one girl from the college who's held back from the picnic and she's the girl who probably has the most obvious crush if you will on miranda she's also a girl who won't recite other people's poetry because she's too busy writing her own and she has this stubborn independent streak that is very defiant and very determined to withstand all the pressures that Mrs. Appleyard herself brings upon Sarah to conform and to get in line and to do what the proper young ladies do. And Sarah's like, I will not. I will not yield. And, uh, you know, whatever punishments, whatever kind of, uh, you know, pressures or condemnations you want to bring upon me, uh, I, I'm just not going to knuckle under to that and and of course that's that's kind of this this other side and that that's the thing that this film has kind of this this central driving core of this hallucinatory uh ambiance that that it sweeps the viewers up into but it primarily works because it's not just that it's got all these other components yeah, yeah. of the more you know uh you know the more structured bourgeoisie life that many of its viewers might be living in, and I'll, I'll count myself among them, although it's in a much more evolved state. I mean, here I am in 21st century suburbia, and a lot of the structures of this, uh, you know, life in the Australian, uh, you know, outback there, I mean, not not the true outback. I mean, there's there are certain pockets of civilization uh, all around through this movie, but uh, even though we're no, nowhere near as, as rigidly repressed we think <laughs> we we still we still inherit a lot of these traditions a lot of these mindsets and so um you know this this is kind of our 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 point of entry is that there is this kind of you know mystical uh elusive uh reality out there in nature and even 
in and around us within our own structured society, uh, whether it's the, the passion and the sensuality of the young or the grappling with our own complicity with repression, as we see in Mrs. Appleyard's character. I mean, she she is one of those enforcers of the social order, and yet she's she's suffering in her solitude and her isolation, especially as all the effort that she's uh, put into creating this college and serving this function within the, the society that, you know, that she's owning up to. Uh, now, because these girls have gone missing under her watch, her whole enterprise is falling into ruin, and she's at a loss. I mean, she had nothing to do with it. It wasn't her fault that these girls disappeared, but she still reaps all the condemnation as if she'd been running a brothel or something like that, you know? So it's like, yeah. wow, the, the payback is... Uh, <laughs> It's literally the payback's a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you mentioned I, I I hadn't thought about this um, bringing this up today, but you mentioned you know a bit more evolved state, and here we both are you know in in suburbia and kind yeah. of living a fairly comfortable life. But um, uh, when you said that, it brought to mind um, Jeffrey Eugenides' um, The Virgin Suicides. Uh, which yeah, was right. adapted by Sofia Coppola into a film that, and I think both of the the book and the movie are are lovely. And I think that they've both said, if I'm remembering correctly, that they did use Picnic at Hanging Rock as quite a bit of inspiration for that. It's it's a film or a story that takes place in you know still not 21st century. I think it's in the late 60s early 70s yeah the detroit suburbs right Uh uh-huh in the suburbs and it's another it's not a lost girls plot quite like picnic at hanging rock where the girls disappear it's a lost girls plot because the girls are kind of um cloistered and taken in by by the suburban suburban uh moors at the time by their parents who are a bit extreme and lock them up into a house and you know, I won't get too much into that plot line, but it, it's not so much about the girls or what they're going through as much as it is about the people on the outside looking in and trying to understand. First off, why do we all find these girls so enchanting? Why can we not forget these girls? And 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 what kind of power do they have over us? We didn't really know them, and. I think Picnic at Hanging Rock is very much like that. Um, you, you mentioned earlier that a lot of the film is the aftermath and with these these this community and how they're dealing with it. And I love that at the beginning, you know, it, it's kind of the way everyone would deal with it. It's a bit of shock and um, a rush to see if we can find these girls because someone's got to pay. You know, there's something went wrong. But as it goes on and you kind of lose that uh, that ability to you you know it it might not be solved you know we, we might we might never find these girls again then people drift off into their own um their their experience grows around what this did to them and what it means to them um whether it's some anger or desperation or even envy and um which is i think one of the most interesting aspects of this film we don't know what happened to these girls we just know that they've escaped this school. <laughs> yes. You know, we just know that they're somewhere else, and I'm here still. And and you know, Sarah in particular, who seems very suited to be out wherever these girls are, if they're in some, you know, did they escape? Did they just did they just walk away 
and, um, you know, join the wilderness, uh, something like that. Um, you know, Sarah is, is kind of envious and upset that she's been left behind. Yeah. Um, though she has no idea what these girls, you know, are they dead? Did they fall into some chasm and, and we'll never find them because they're, you know, just too far away and there are tons of animals out there anyway. So their bodies will never be found. But you know, in some romantic way, she'd rather be with her beloved yeah. Miranda. Yep, exactly. Even if it's dead, even if it's eaten by the you know the <laughs> Tasmanian devils or whatever, uh, that that's a better fate than stuck in this living hell of repression and mm-hmm. judgment which is, and all that. Which is what she she does. You know, she does. I don't want to use the word escape because I don't like. Um, I, I'm not comfortable equating suicide with an escape. Um, but that's how she views her own suicide at the end. You know, I yeah. guess just to spoil it more, um, well, Sarah kills herself yeah. and it's, it's her way of, of leaving and going wherever it is that Miranda and her, you know, the other girls have gone. Yeah. I mean, I actually, I, I teach and, and have researched extensively on suicide and I, I don't think it's that, inaccurate or inappropriate to you know to characterize suicide as a form of escape uh, it's not that the person wants to be particularly dead but there's a pain there's a existential crisis of some sort even if it's just they're hearing voices and they just want to make the voices stop or some other chronic illness or whatever the condition may be that death has become sort of the way out from that particular ordeal and it becomes a preferred alternative then to stay ongoing with whatever it is that they're trying to get away from. So uh, it is a way of rationalizing suicide, I suppose, and there is a certainly a risk in that and that you sort of normalize it or, or present it as an alternative, an option. But, uh, but we do have to wrap our minds around it, especially those of us who work with people at risk of actually completing that act. So a uh, little bit of a side note there, but it did kind of touch on something that I do have personal and professional experience with. So, yeah, and, and so that's the thing. that There's, there's all these explosive, uh, uh, quietly explosive, I guess is probably a better way of putting it, because everything is just kind of seething beneath the surface here. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, there's something about there's something about lost teenage girls, uh, you know, just getting into the their sexuality, yeah. that creates this atmosphere of you know uh, attraction and and fear. Oh, and, and, and immense shame. regrets because all this yeah. beautiful uh, potential, the potential is, is gone. gone. Right. Right. Um, but I, I wanted to look, too, at the aspect of shame. Um, no one, as far as we know, nobody in this movie that we meet did anything to these girls. But they're all, well, not all of them, but, but you know, I'm thinking particularly of the young boy, Michael. You yes. know, there's a degree of shame there because right before they disappeared, he was following them because he was physically attracted to Miranda in particular. That's what drove him up into the mountain. He 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 yeah. found he finds Irma, but he was really after <laughs> the tall blonde, right? You know? Yeah, exactly. And and so I I like how his story. You can see it when he's being interviewed by the police. 
it's almost as if he did go up there and, and rape them. Well, his, the, police the are way he's talking, yeah, they're, they're they're putting that in his, you know, they they assume that, yeah, but you can tell he almost feels that, bit. yeah, yeah, because he was not that he was thinking of it necessarily, but but he was, you know, either consciously or subconsciously, there was a part of him that was going out after the, these girls, and now that they've disappeared, he's implicated in their disappearance, um, both. Because, you know, literally by people investigating the the disappearance, but also just a bit in his mind um, and in the minds of others. Um, it, it's an interesting aspect, too. And I just think that Picnic at Hanging Rock does such a great job of of pulling together this this fear, guilt, shame and envy. All these weird kind of disparate feelings that we might have that kind of centralize around these kinds of plots. Um, yeah, well, I just yeah. think it does it better. <laughs> well, you know, Michael is definitely prime suspect number one, but you know, there's also the interplay between him and Albert, the young, uh, you know, the young horse driver, the coachman, who's, you know, pretty much, you know, the same age as Michael, but you know, he's the roughneck of the bunch. He's he's uh, he got the tattoos on his arms, which is interesting. And did you notice the one tattoo? I think it's on his right arm, is of. Uh, uh, Venus on the half shell, <laughs> or the Botticelli. No, I didn't yeah, notice it that. Is. Well, you, you, you see it most clearly in this, one of the scenes where they're talking together, and you really only see the bottom half of uh, Venus's body, but she is standing on a on a half shell. She has her her legs are bare. Her hand is kind of strategically placed over her, you know, her her private area there, and 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 that's the same. It's the bottom half of the same image that uh, Mademoiselle is looking at, the the French teacher, uh, when she last sees Miranda herself, and she recognizes that Miranda is a Botticelli angel. It's like, yeah, yeah. So there's a very you know interesting little sort of symbolic uh, connection between uh, you know the the the, the educational material of, of the school and this young ruffian uh, Albert who. You know, he he will say the the vulgar things while Michael only thinks them. <laughs> yeah, which is a nice explicit part because, and again, I think played very nicely by those two. Um, you know, the the vulgar coach drivers says, "Oh, look at her legs! I bet they're long and go all the way up to her bum." You know, kind of thing, and it is crass. And Michael says, "Don't I, I don't like you saying those kinds of crass things." Yeah. But uh, you know, the the horse driver can't remember his name either right now. Albert. Um, Albert. Albert is is thinking, or and says explicitly what you just said. Well, I say them, but you're thinking them, yeah, and exactly. it's and it's, it's true. the difference between the the common folk and the aristocracy because because Michael is the son of a is a son or nephew, but he's he's kind of the ward of this elderly couple, this very affluent couple, and um, uh, Fitzhubert is his last name. I mean, just the name itself, Fitzhubert, kind of gives you that kind of hoity-toity. Attitude, you know, and and so he is a young man born to wealth and privilege, and he's the kind of young man who presumably will be able to just go out and get what he wants because life is being handed to him on a silver platter, and uh, and yet he he is in significant peril. I think in the police eyes, he is suspect number one. You know, he's a young man of a certain age, feels kind of privileged. He has his eye on this. You know these vulnerable young women uh, without chaperones, without any accompaniment, and uh, and even even his zeal to pursue them after after they've disappeared, and and uh, 
you know that that, that sort of seems like there's a, something resting on his conscience there but uh that 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 suspicion is never never verified or confirmed and so there we go he's he's you know he's able to live freely and and go on with his life so yeah it's just one of those themes I was going to say that, and and I, I kind of wanted to talk about how the film begins to strip away all of these possible solutions. Um, you know, Michael climbs up the rock and says, "I'm going to spend the night." And Albert is there, thinking, "Oh, that's kind of crazy." But when Albert goes up to find him the next day, Michael's been in kind of a fit all night yeah. and is still in kind of this semi-consciousness as they bring him down, but he's got the clothing of one of the girls in his hand, which is strange. Yeah, um, a little a little scrap, one little mm-hmm. little piece of a garment that's gotten presumably torn off on a rock or a branch or something like that. Or in his hand or you know, but but we don't we don't know oh, exactly true. what's he could going have on. Had that. Yeah, he could have had that all along. You're right. Maybe he yeah. had it from that first <laughs> But then Albert and, and maybe your mind goes there, but then Albert climbs up the rock and finds Irma, one of the girl, one of the three who disappeared, is back, and the doctors examine her, and she's not been assaulted. Um, she seems fine, other than the fact that her fingers are kind of um, worn away and, and damaged, almost as if she's been, you know, climbing rock or scraping on a wall or something like that. And but there's been some nothing days. with this her feet. Is, she hasn't been. She could oh, have just yeah. been laying there unconscious this whole time. I mean, she would have dehydrated and died after what this is like a week later yeah i think it was about a week exactly yeah so so yeah for those listening um yeah certainly this wasn't the same night they didn't just go up there and find her you know she's been gone long enough that she's gone (laughs) but she's reappeared which is very strange and and with no signs of you know rape or anything like that other than like amnesia about what might have happened yeah. she recovers she doesn't remember and she or at least on. isn't yeah. telling yeah and and, and, and and she's eventually reunited back to the school she shows up in all of her finery and of course there's a kind of histrionic <laughs> scene there as the girls don't embrace her with gratitude they seize upon her it's quite quite horrific yeah it is it's one of the most terrifying scenes of the film she shows up in red first off everyone's always been wearing white and she shows up in red to say goodbye she is leaving the school she's she has she has overcome the school or something like that you know she's done with it and she goes in and and her friends don't want to wish her well don't want it they want to know what happened they want to know where she's been. They want to know what she knows. They they want to kind of, in a way, have experienced what she's experienced and been able to come back from. But there's no answers come forthcoming. And, and it also seems to me that they kind of wish Miranda was the one who had survived. Why is it you? Why not Miranda? You know, and it, I mean, there's like this collective yearning for Miranda, whereas Irma, who herself is also, you know, beautiful and and is destined for what would seem to be a pretty comfortable and, and happy life. Um, but she's, she's not the one that they really wished would, would have returned, you know? <laughs> so it's just kind of a, yeah. a weird, you talked about envy earlier on. And I think there is you know, all sorts of, you know, that, that subtext there of, of, you know, there, there's a, on the surface, a, a certain camaraderie and a, and a closeness and a conviviality, but 
at the same time, you see kind of how fragile that is because, you know, the loyalties uh, seem to evaporate pretty quickly when when adversity strikes. Well, and for Sarah in particular, who when Irma comes back, I mean, there's kind of a, a connection to Miranda has reappeared in her life. And when she comes in, when Irma comes in and says goodbye to their classmates, and there's that histrionic scene as you were talking about, Sarah's tied to the wall in the back to correct her posture. Her it looks like a torture device. It is. It feels very much. I like mean, the it, it is a torture device, really. But <laughs> chamber of horrors. There, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the the Mrs. Appleyard just loves punishing Sarah, and there's all kinds of possible reasons for that too, which um, is one of the reasons I love this 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 story, this movie is because there's no satisfactory solution. You can examine a lot of possibilities that, that give all kinds of interpretations that are more fascinating um, because they're tinged with your own, you know, as a viewer, your own subconsciousness and your own experiences and your own desires and envies and fears because of all that, it's so much more satisfying that it's, unsatisfactory you know that the ending well, doesn't doesn't right. satisfy you right i mean there are all these you know hints or these possibilities these tangents that could be speculated upon that are not explicitly put forth i mean to what degree does some kind of twisted you know lesbian sadomasochism inform mrs appleyard's uh you know running of the college and 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 who does she who does she single out for her particular torments uh, who does she favor? Who does she condemn? And yeah. but but yeah. you know you're right. But I, it's not it's exactly. not throwing that stuff in your face. It's just there as as potential background, and and you 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 read between the lines. But that's another angle that that this makes this film very much a rewatchable uh, feast that you can sort of sink into and and dissect from different angles and and mm-hmm. find new things in with each viewing. Well, because Mrs. Appleyard, it can run the gambit from Sarah's just been a little rebellious and hasn't finished her homework. Therefore, she can't go to the rock. You know, she can't go out with her friends today. She's staying back. You know, that's mean, but reasonable. But it also could be, I recognize that Sarah has a crush on Miranda and that's inappropriate. You know, right. that we need to keep her away from her. Yeah. Or And you can take that a step farther and say, and I recognize that in myself, and I hate that part of myself, and oh, so yeah, I hate right, Sarah, right. Mm-hmm. and I'm going to just torture yeah, her if, to if, death. If Sarah, if I can't have that fulfillment, neither can she. <laughs> that kind of thing, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. just kind of a pettiness type of thing. And 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 it's 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 you, you know, it's it's the viewer who has to go there because the film doesn't make it explicit, and therefore you're almost um, complicit away in a way in this this fallen community as well because you know that's how i look at the film it's um it's the aftermath of a ter- terrible event that makes everyone wake up and realize they don't have any control in their world in fact they live in a fallen community and all of these thoughts about rape and and um and murder and just plain old dis- maybe they ran away i mean every one of these has implications about the world they still live in and the possibilities in it that they choose to ignore most of the time as they just try to get from the day to day. And, you know, Weir does a great job of putting that upon us as well as 
as he's showing us what these these people are going through. I just I just think it's amazing. <laughs> I really yes. do. And 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 the bric-a-brac of all the Victoriana, all the all the little portraits and the china and the candelabra and the all that ornamentation that kind of just suffuses all the domesticated scenes and again that that contrast between the 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 pagan wilderness of 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 this weird australian landscape and uh the uh, very uh, imported uh colonial uh fineries and and regimentation just all that you know how this foreign culture just kind of presses itself down upon this very rugged landscape i mean there there isn't any of the it's very deep in the background as far as the the imposition of uh, you know english culture onto the australian landscape uh certainly a film like walkabout gets more into that type of you know, real tension between two very different cultures, you know, in collision course with each other. But there is still that, that sense of, you know, all these, all these customs that have evolved in in Britain over the course of many centuries now being kind of brought over to this kind of wilderness, this, this land that uh, does not easily yield. And, and in a sense, the, the land has gotten the upper hand here. Uh, uh, Mrs. Appleyard's college and, and indeed Mrs. Appleyard's uh, career and, and her life end up on the losing side of the um, of the equation uh, in the, in this kind of cultural or even existential showdown. And uh, you know, again, it's not, it's not like the whole British colonial enterprise has just gone away, and we certainly still see the 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 surviving remnants and 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 it the culture becomes its own thing as 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 the colonial era fades and and now Australia has its own sort of society and its own way of life and and they've kind of found its it this kind of truce you know and i I guess I'm very intrigued now to to hear what uh, some of our Australian listeners might have to say about uh us Yanks uh, kind of telling it. <laughs> from, from our here's how it is there. This, yeah, yeah, here's my interpretation for you fellas. You know? <laughs> but, yeah, but well, it, welcome. But it is for sure. and, and I guess in that whole aspect of Australian film as a thing, I mean, I will I will say I'm very much a beginner. I, I really have not given a lot of thought to Australian film or even Australian culture as its own unique expression of humanity, uh, probably n- not nearly to the degree that it deserves as a, as, as kind of its, its own, uh, kind of it's, its own unique perspective that I think would inform an enriched mind, uh, you know, within the criterion collection, there's a kind of a slim offering of, of Australian films. And this is probably one of the primary, I've already mentioned walkabout, which is more about it's a, a film set in Australia, um, but more from a European perspective, and then there's is it one other Peter Weir film, The Last Wave? Um, you know, there's not a whole lot more. There's not a lot, <laughs> but it's it's a start, you know. And uh, I, I would certainly like to think that maybe there's more uh, in the works. But I'd I'd like to have that guided tour uh, to to let me know where where to go next. Well, and talking about the Australian connection, I think we can maybe 
universalize this a little bit to get a little more comfortable since we need, I haven't <laughs> yeah. been to Australia and don't know a lot here. about it either. But there's this, you know, I mean, th- there's this sense of um, you, you get these British people who have arrived there and even dress as if they're in some kind of British snowstorm in the middle of uh, summer in Australia. You know, they've got their everything buttoned up all the way. They're wearing their gloves. Um, they just want to take it off. The girls do. Some of the girls, not all of them. Some of them are very comfortable, protected in this kind of uh, in these mores as well as as in the school. You know, I think that Edith, the the one who does not disappear, <laughs> who goes walking with them, I think she finds a degree of comfort in this school and in this system. It, oh, yeah. it, it, it gives her a bit of a, a leg up, but. Um, there's this sense of things that you just they they can't understand that that as you try to civilize the mind and the psyche you're going to leave some things out that are part of a human experience that that affect you deeply but that you can't understand and i think the film goes there quite nicely as well as when you pull out the the you know nature versus here's our civilized um schoolyard um you you've got this sense of people who are dealing with things that they simply don't have the ability to articulate anymore. Um, whether it, it and then the nature emphasizes that and underscores that, and certainly could be a big part of that. Um, you know, there's just there there are things out there that we're just not prepared to cope with, and it can result in the amnesia that Irma has and. And a lot of these other different things, whatever traumatic event happened, um, you know, sometimes people can't talk about them afterwards, uh, well, even yeah, if they you, know what's right. going on. Yeah, you're just, you're just kind of overloaded, and that's that's what happened. I mean, I guess in a sense that these girls, um, even those who survived it, you know, Irma and Edith, um, the the contrast between the repression that they sort of emerged from, and then this encounter with you know, raw nature at its most primeval and overpowering just kind of left them speechless. And, and ancient. You know? And ancient, you know? the ancientness, exactly. Yeah. Whether it's thousands of years or millions of years, you know. <laughs> when, when it erupted from underneath, as yeah, Miss yeah. McCraw says at the beginning. Oh, yeah, which yeah, yeah. Mrs. McCraw, she has a couple of pretty I, nice little soliloquies <laughs> there. And, and I, I, wanted, I, I have it down that I want to talk about her because here we're talking about these beautiful young girls yeah. who have disappeared and she their also sexuality. Right. She's the but, older woman. Yeah. She's an older math teacher at the school, I'd say in her late 60s, um, and she yeah, and, disappears. And she's she was Mrs. Appleyard's kind of right-hand, you know, confidant. She's the other mm-hmm. older, mature woman who could kind of keep the, the iron fist on things while the— Perhaps, you know, there were, you know, perhaps a bit more um, allowing. I mean, she's the one talking to the girls— about the rock in a very sexual way, <laughs> you know, maybe yes, she's not doing yes. it deliberately, but, but I get the sense she has a little bit more, um, willingness to go there than Mrs. Appleyard. Well, I, th- I think they, they, that's, that's, whether that's a sort of a good cop, bad cop thing, or, you know, she's the one who's able to just maybe a little bit more comfortable with, with, with the frankness, you know, I think, I'm, I'm trying to imagine. I think Mrs. Appleyard was a widow. She had been married. I think Miss McCraw was probably one of those classic spinsters, you know. And she That's was my a, impression too. Yeah, she, she was a woman of of scientific and mathematical temperament. So she she's not your traditional feminine type who's 
born to be somebody's wife. You know, she's not Mrs. Anybody. She's Miss McCraw, and that's all she ever was or, or, or intended to be. And so in that sense, she does have a little bit more of that willingness to be an independent woman, independence in in self-sufficiency, independence in thinking. And, and and so she does provide a little bit of that perspective because I think even Mrs. Appleyard would have to concede that, you know, the the education of these girls does involve their their intellect, not just their body management or uh, the trappings of femininity. So, you know, it's it's the big picture. And, and like anybody else in a leadership position uh, who recognizes their own limitations, you've got to have people who do other things very well that, that you're just not quite as capable of or not as 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 uh, experienced with. And so, you know, that that's the balancing act there. But, but yeah, Miss McCraw, and of course, her disappearance is never really, other than just one you know, verbal description of what happened, it's never really given much screen time or attention, but she somehow disappeared uh, separately from the girls, but she never turned up either. And it sort of leads me to talk a little bit more about um, you know some of the supplemental features, the most Im- immediately impressive of which is is the book that that comes with this new Criterion edition. Okay, uh, so yeah. uh, because that was going to be one of my questions, not just about the sure. book, but. I do have one thing I want to talk about with Mrs. McCraw, but I also wanted to ask you, why is she either condemned or blessed to disappear as well? You know, what, what, what is the movie doing? Because it is forgettable. You can sit there and think about these girls, you know, forever. And that's what most of us do. But what about this elderly spinster woman who also is, you know, again, it's hard to say if it's a gift or a curse, or whatever, probably just indifferent nature, or you know, who knows? Um, chaos of the world, but who disappears as well? What what does that have to do with this? The other things that we've been talking about, I, I don't know if a lot of people wrestle with that. So I'm curious for your insights, and in particular, well, if you got anything from the book. I, I you know, it does come from the book. It is an element of the book that I think got carried over into the film, but it's not really explored all that much in the film. I think I think their decision was just to maintain fidelity to the to the story to the original source material in the book though uh, you definitely get into miss mccraw's character uh much more extensively and she herself also has this kind of uh awakening type of experience and it's 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 not like they she still doesn't get nearly as much attention in the book as as the girls do that the trio of girls um but but it's there, and and I think this, that element itself also even goes back to the 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 story's formation, the, the novel itself by Joan Lindsay, which was a uh, you know published in sixty seven, so about you know seven years or so before the film was in production, and eight years before it was released. Um, this this novel apparently, and you get this from some of the supplements, was was almost kind of. An, an eruption, uh, a psychic eruption of sorts, to the author herself, Joan Lindsay, who was an older woman at the time and who had attended a college very much like uh, Appleyard College, and and was an Australian. So she she had some life experience that sort of informed this. But she she apparently this this whole story was envisioned or was conceived in a series of dreams and it was really kind of this personal 
sort of thing that just kind of came up from her subconscious. And so that that in itself is kind of fascinating because it really does you know enhance the aura of mystery surrounding this entire story and she she was very deliberate about um uh evading any kind of pinning down on the idea that was this based on true events was was this a historic fact i mean the movie really kind of plays with that um that you know, did it happen or did it not thing pretty pretty provocatively and and she really uh, resisted that even even peter weir himself um asked her about this and her response to that question was this based on history or true true story or not she says young man never ask me that question again it's like okay okay we're done now you know so so but i i i feel like you know she's she is just kind of bringing different female archetypes into the into this mystery here and one of them is the older woman who's lived her life somewhat you know aloof somewhat independently from the social order of things and she herself has her own kind of awakening experience as i've already said and and that's kind of where that comes from so it's not really explored in the film but you do definitely get a little bit more of that you know perspective of the woman who removes her skirt and runs around in her pantaloons and 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 is never seen again so you know uh, it's 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 an amazing um tidbit in the film and i kind of i always i I love that it's in there even though it's not explored because again it's one of those things that you can't you can put the puzzle together and then you've got miss mccraw a piece of the puzzle sitting out on the outside you haven't put that piece in yet and yep. if you try to put it in something else falls out <laughs> you know it, it makes it unresolvable i think in my mind but in a, in a way that makes it feel just right is the is the mysteriousness because you know you talk about is this based on historical event or not well no i mean we we know that this this particular thing on valentine's day in 1900 did not happen at, at hanging rock but you know, junk like this happens all the time. People people disappear, and we don't know where they went. Yeah. Um, and it, the effects that that has on us those that's real. I mean, this is this is a true story in many ways. I mean, even here in in my town of Salem, Utah, um, there are just a few things like this that have happened in the past that we don't know what happened, or we think we do, but it's not enough evidence to really clamp down on any particular person and it's you know and i'm talking about particular disappearances of 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 young girls it's it's a thing that is kind of universal and and i see in in as this story pops up here in my hometown every once in a while when there's some new development i see in the the community in picnic at hanging rock you know in some ways uh, who's to blame what are you guys thinking who, how did you think that that's not part of the evidence your mind went there all by itself <laughs> you know um, right. because of your own um uh subconsciousness and your own desires and things I, it's it's a strange thing i mean this is this is a true story just not based on a particular true event but it, i i love how in the supplements it shows some of the um, interviews with the cast back when they were filming it. 
Yeah. Almost, and asking them questions as if it's a true story, you know, and the cast themselves, I didn't get a sense as to which one of them thought it might be and which ones of them knew it wasn't, but were playing it up because they all just kind of played it like, yeah, you know, this is a, this is a strange mystery and I wouldn't want to sleep here. You know, Michael, the the guy who plays Michael says, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, Michael's yeah. a little crazy for sleeping here. I wouldn't do it. You know, so it's, I love how they play it up a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, great thing. Is it, the, the, I don't know if I'm cutting you off. I did want to touch no, no, on one fine. other thing with Miss McCraw. Mm-hmm. Sure. She, she's the math teacher, and when she's sitting at, at Hanging Rock, just enjoying the the midday that atmosphere, you know, which is again, I'll, maybe we won't talk too much about the cinematography, but that picture, uh, that shot of them from a long distance sitting under the rock. With oh, the yeah. sun mist hanging over it's, them is beautiful. It's iconic, totally. It, it is. It's it's a beautiful moment of reverie. The little parasols, all these girls in their white <laughs> their gowns, white, just yep. kind of draped over the rocks, and and that little sun dappled picture with the with the hard <laughs> the hard imposing edge of the mountain, the, mm-hmm. the trees uh, stretching oh. up into the sky. It is. <laughs> it's, it's an absolutely ecstatic, timeless moment there. It's beautiful. But while they're sitting there, Miss McCraw is reading a geometry book. <laughs> yes. And with their little triangles <laughs> and circles and formulas there. And I mean, it's just like, wow, kind of a little out of place there. Can't you do that back in the parlor? <laughs> <laughs> For me, and I agree totally, but I, it also brings to mind, and I, I brought up Roberto Bolaño in our kind of 2016 year in review episode when we were when Scott was talking about... Um, Oh uh, shoot! Uh, Jacques Rivette's uh, Paris belongs to us. Yes, when Scott was yes. talking about it, I brought up Bolaño as kind of one of these writers who would allow the point of the book to be that there's no point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. almost um, the point of this book is that you can't figure out the point. And and there, his magnum opus, Bolaño's magnum opus, is a book called Twenty Six Sixty Six or Two Six Six Six. Uh, he wrote it when he was dying, and he died before it was published. There's, you know, we don't know how, if he would have had more to do with it or not. Um, we're not sure how finished it was. But there's, it's a book about um, the disappearance of girls down in Juarez in Mexico. Um, there have been hundreds and hundreds of, of girls abducted and murdered uh, down in that area, and his book is about that particular region and about the violence in people when it, the, the latent violence. And yeah, we know that a lot of these girls didn't just up and disappear like they did in Picnic at Hanging Rock. There's a whole section in this book, I mean, uh, called the part about the crimes, which describes these crimes, the, what what happened to the girls. So it's not quite that. Um, mystical in that regard. It's just the fact that they are disappearing and that there's so many of them. And what do people do about it on the other side, you know, who are waiting for these girls to come home or whatever. And there's a particular character who lives down there and who's trying to, you know, a lot of the book is about trying to understand why this happens, trying to understand this violent, this chaos in this world where we think it's pretty civilized Um, But this is a modern world, you know, this isn't even Victorian in Australia, this is, this is the modern world here. And there's a a person who's reading a geometry book in this, in this book. And he ends up becoming a little bit crazy, we think, or maybe just super sane. 
Um, he goes and hangs up the pages of the geometry book outside on the wire so that the elements can just destroy it. With the, the idea being, I think, in my mind anyway, that you can try to map out and make sense of a lot of this world with science and with figures, but it's going to still destroy all of that stuff. You know, right, this geometry right. book is still going to be destroyed. And and I didn't catch it the first time I watched the movie. I don't know if I'd read the 2666 yet. <clears throat> but I caught it this time that that's what Miss McCraw is doing there. She's she's talking about the rock scientifically, but also, you know, in strangely sexual terms. She's reading a geometry book, but she's the one who escapes it all in a, in a way as well. And you just, you, it, it's another image of trying to civilize or trying to make sense of and control this world. And the movie's going to go on to say, you can't always do that. The world is going to throw mysteries at you. It's going to shake you off your feet. Bad things are going to happen that you don't know why they did, and you may not even know what the bad thing was. But it, it, you can't make sense of everything, and this is a movie about that. Um, so anyway, just a weird little yeah. connection there. Yeah. I, I actually this time yeah, wondered, a- did Bolaño watch the movie <laughs> and, and throw <laughs> well, in that geometry yeah, part? <laughs> just such a, such a sort of a specific connector there. And, you know, not that I'm here to trash geometry. I think geometry and science also gives us an angle of appreciation for nature. Mm-hmm. That, you know, yeah. it's just another way of kind of wrapping our minds around it or or you know appreciating the exquisiteness of of this extraordinary world that we live mm-hmm. in well and maybe the problem yeah. is when you think you've solved it you know yeah, yeah, yes exactly. she can measure the rock she can figure out how old they are she can tell you know how tall is the rock by measuring its shadow at this time of day she can she can do all that but you got to appreciate the part that you can't figure out which is the vastness of time and experience and the, yeah. the other things that are almost invisible under your feet you know, I think it's Edith who says we could be the only things in existence, and then it oh. goes on to show all the ants and all the bugs and all the birds yeah. and all you know. It, well, so much there, right? And and that, those images of the ants crawling through the cake and you know the, this this cake, this little this little confection, you know, and and really within moments we see these tiny human beings crawling through these gigantic rocks and aren't we just like little ants on the cake <laughs> yeah. in the in the in the in the landscape here you know uh-huh. and and i just thought well what a brilliant you know kind of parallel and and visual sequence they've put together there and yeah let's just talk a little bit about the cinematography i mean uh there are some very beautiful things that are done here with the the juxtaposition of imagery the uh kind of multiple exposures you know when when uh Miranda is first opening the gate to get into the picnic grounds i mean you know you know you're, you're just unlatching a, a gate swinging it open and and driving the tram through right well no there's something it's a, it's like a portal has been opened and and so you see the 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 superimposed flocks of birds flying hither and yon and in Anne's face and this kind of this this sequence is just quite you know, quite wondrous and, and quite beautiful. And then again, just how do they get how do they get the lighting effects? You know, you, you've spoken a little bit about the cinematography. Uh, some of this is just very old fashioned. Like they they got women's hosiery and bridal veils and would put them over the camera lens just to get that diffusion just right. And it's like again a very very accomplished um, 
on a, and this is a low budget film as well. This is very much an kind of a an Aussie independent, uh, you know, uh, pull them up by the bootstraps type of production, but it feels very polished and very refined and 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 very elegantly conceived and executed. So, uh, you know, give credit to these folks who really made something quite lasting out of uh, you know first good source material. Uh, second, you know, sufficient resources and and casting and all of that, but but I think uh, they they really uh, they achieved something at a very high level when maybe it wasn't you know automatically guaranteed that it would be of of this significance or or this lasting mm-hmm. enduring quality. And they had a bit of dumb luck too, in or maybe not dumb luck, but. Weir was ready to change things if the if it called for it, and I like how um, Miranda, in particular, played by Anne Lambert, yep. she hadn't ca- been cast as Miranda at the beginning. Right, right. <laughs> you she learned was just this one in the, the supplements. Right, just one of the girls, and as as everyone kind of watched her, they realized that's Miranda. You know, I go to another mysterious movie, Mulholland Drive. You know, that's the girl. <laughs> you know, that right, kind of right. kind of moment of of aha, that's who's going to do it. And Miss A- Mrs. Appleyard, played by Rachel Roberts, um, they had someone else cast as Mrs. Appleyard, who ended up, I think, at the very last second, not being able to do it. And who knows how that would have hap- how that would have turned out? But Rachel Roberts is amazing as Mrs. Appleyard. And I put in my review that I wrote when the Blu-ray came out, um, I think that as far as moral high-mindedness and actual and perceived authority, Mrs. Appleyard is much more terrifying than Nurse Ratched is in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, kind of that quintessential female authority figure who's kind of wicked as well. I think Mrs. Appleyard has got her trumped um, big time, (laughs) you know, and I think a lot of that is Rachel Roberts. She looks, she's stern, but there's a sense of, wispiness to her as well her hair is always in control except for when a few strands just get a little bit loose mm-hmm. she she looks on the edge of breaking down a lot in the movie and and i think that she does you know rachel roberts does such a great job and that's just another one of those things that just happened um and i think probably i'm just going to assume um to the movie's uh benefit even though it was not planned it was just a fortuitous um, accident that whoever it was I, um, couldn't do uh, play the role, and so we've got this other person on the on the sideline who's going to jump in and and knock it out of the park. I mean, she. I'll mix my metaphors there a little yeah. bit, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, it was it was, it was very nice. Uh, the the casting and and the performances are all excellent. Uh, just that 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 muted color palette, the way they were able to sort of. Even you know, even though there is, we've talked about the contrast between the outdoor scenes and the indoor scenes, uh, the, the the wilderness and the civilization. Uh, there is a very consistent look and feel that that knits it all together. And, uh, and again, it's just and you know, one of the supplements I appreciate just a, a, a short little se- segment of it was talking about the um, the, the look that they were aiming for. Uh, I can't remember the name of the the, the painting movement, but there was kind of a uh, an Australian uh, fine arts, uh, you know, oil paintings and things of that sort that they were specifically uh, looking to emulate. And and there's a few samples of landscapes and and I think there's even an interior with some some human figures. And and they really do. Uh, it's remarkable how uh, the you know the the 
the palette and and the and the diffused uh, kind of not fuzziness, but just kind of the there's almost like a mistiness in the air uh, that yeah often yeah is, is the kind of the effect that they're creating, and and that's and that comes through from the paintings into the into the finished work of the film here, which you know does indeed look quite glorious uh, in the high definition. Now this is apparently not a 4K transfer. I was just looking at the the Criterion box. It just says remastered high definition digital film transfer. So to me that just means like basically a 1080p transfer. Uh, but it the the film is is magnificent um, on the Blu-ray or the 4K display, and and as I'm looking at the supplements, some of which were mostly made in the early 2000s, um, you know you definitely see uh, a step down in quality because some of those are like video and and lower resolution. But uh, man, the film really glows in in this new setup, and and like I say, the old DVD. It was just kind of a placeholder after all those years, I guess, is how it turned out. Yeah, exactly. And and it's kind of a shame. I mean, that's how I saw it first was on a not-so-great transfer. And, yeah, I liked the film. But, boy, this is, this is one of those that shows why I think Blu-ray and really kind of trying to see these. Not that I want to just only watch things in the best, best possible way, which means I won't watch anything that isn't. Um, you know, there's still a lot to, to say about just getting out there and being able to see some, uh, some old film or whatever, um, that hasn't been restored, but this one just shows that, yeah, it can affect your experience <laughs> with the film. It's a part of it, you know, oh, the, yeah, the, yeah. it's a part of, part of the presentation, part of the themes, part of the whole experience with it, specifically in a film like this, where he is trying, I mean, deliberately trying to, to hypnotize you. He's using the music to do that. He's using the the light kind of filtering through. I mean, he, he wants to put you in a dream state um, yeah. with this film. It actually starts with the, you know, um, who we are and what we seem is but a dream, a dream within a dream. That's kind yeah. of a misquote of an Edgar Allan Poe poem. And, you know, he, he wants us almost to get into that same state mm-hmm. <laughs> to experience this. And it works. It works particularly well with this this kind of presentation. So, but, yeah, definitely. um, well, I think I, I've covered things that I wanted to, we haven't, I'm not sure if we've talked about the supplements as much as you wanted to. I, I didn't watch them this time around. I watched yeah. them when I reviewed the Blu-ray before, and I really did appreciate the, the supplements on us, the Australian film industry, um, how it was kind of growing up at this time and, um, how this was helping, you know, how, how Australia that actually helped, start creating these films recognized we want to be a part of this um movement this art this art and you know i, I did like those um and i we've talked a little bit about the supplements with the cast and crew and what they s- said and revealed um and you talked a little bit about the book is there so- anything else that you wanted to to go over as far as this edition well i think i think the inclusion of the book is a really nice uh feature now there are many many criterion films that are based on a you know a a a quality work of literature uh some of which are readily available so others might take some hunting down or might not even be available in the english language Uh, but i i really appreciate criterion packaging this 
film with the book because I think the book really does enhance my viewing. I mean, I had seen the film before and I liked it and I was intrigued and very eager to talk about it again. But I thought, you know, I'm going to read the book first and then watch the film and sort of experience it that way because the book was, you know, you know, a relatively, you know, as a minor bestseller, I guess it, it had a following of its own. And, uh, you know, Peter Weir reading this book, which was popular in its day, he and others thought, oh, this would make, this would make a terrific film. And so um, let's see how they do that transition from book to movie. Um, oftentimes, of course, we're seeing the movie first, and then we might go back and look at the book later. But I, I decided let's Let's just try to recreate that order. Go ahead. You were going to say something. I, I was going to say it, not to not to interrupt fully, but the in particular producer, um, uh, the executive producer Patricia Lovell, um, she she's the one who optioned the book because she you know she thought it was brilliant. She loved it and thought, well, maybe that would be fun to make a movie out of it. But she didn't really think about doing it until someone came along and said, no, you really you should do this. And she, she's the one who kind of put it together. And she's in the supplements as well and kind of yeah. talks about that experience. So, sorry, yeah. I just wanted to throw in, um, you know, it was a female producer who said, this material calls to me. I want to do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, the, so the book does give you more of that background. You get into more of the internal psychology of some of the characters. There are also, there are also a few little subplots that are not fully explored uh, as or or some elements that don't even make it into the movie. I mean, they, they did obviously, and they often have to do that to trim the story down just to make it more manageable, save a little bit on the casting, and you know, cut away from the distracting side plots. But yeah, it's 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 a book that really does you know put you deeper into that mindset. And and because the uh, the author herself also features somewhat prominently, you know, in the supplements, and she had a very emotional response to. Uh, the process of the filmmaking, uh, Ann Lambert, the the uh, woman who played Miranda, uh, here she's being inter- you know, interviewed probably, I guess she'd probably be in her 40s, and she's still beautiful, but obviously has had a, a lifetime of perspective and, and thinking back on these, the you know, this formative experience, but she recounts an incident where Joan Lindsay, just seeing her, just runs up and embraces her really deeply, really firmly, and says, "Oh, Miranda, it's it's been such a long time." <laughs> it's like, wow, you know, that just—I mean, that that just says a lot right there about the the passionate intensity of the author herself and her uh, very deeply personal connection to this this story and this material. And, and I think just knowing that this this story, the the whole picnic at Hanging Rock, the legend, if you will has its origins in this kind of particular woman's, this kind of numinous side of her personality, this kind of, you know, this uh, filtering through a life of experience, and then she, you know, somewhat in later years, decides she wants to, to lay this story on the world, and then this story goes out and it sort of has a life of its own. Uh, but it comes out of this person's very subjective experience, and it turns out to be such a uh, an engaging and, and somewhat haunting uh, piece of literature and, and, and then a, a piece of cinema and that that just to me just enhances the appeal of this whole thing it's like wow there's somebody really felt something very vividly and and brought it to life and now we're all kind of sharing in this experience and so uh yeah I, i'm just really uh happy that we've had this occasion to to talk about it. and i will say a lot of us out there these us criterion completionists and collectors we have these 
these nice editions sitting on our shelves and how many of us have actually read the book <laughs> you know there are a few criterion Not books out me. there you know? <laughs> right yeah mr <laughs> book reader <laughs> but but i would say get to it and 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 uh take advantage of the fact that criterion did decide to track down the rights and publish this thing and you know i don't even know if the book's still in print as a standalone edition maybe it is you know at some level but uh uh, I'm really glad it was thrown in there. It really is a nice little uh, memento to put up on my shelf, and I'm glad I was able to get the whole experience out of it. Well, they they work with Penguin to to get this book in this edition, and it's a it's a it's unique to this box. You know, this isn't a this isn't a book. This particular version of the book, an edition of the book from Penguin, isn't one that you can just go out and buy. Um, that's right. But, it, uh, it says on the back, not for individual sale. So if you yeah, see it for yeah. individual sale, don't do it. it. You can't do it. It's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, so I haven't read the book, and I've been meaning to for well two and a half years now. <laughs> I need to, and I think it'll be a great time when I do. I have, however, read with a thing that we haven't talked about yet, which is Joan Lindsay's ending for the book. The the ending that she didn't publish, um, the last oh. chapter, the one okay. that reveals what happened, and there there is some some I, I've seen online, so I don't know, I guess how true it is, but some r- suggestions that she didn't write this; it was a, a publicity stunt after she died. But I kind of think that she did, and I think that. Um, you know, she did have it in her her wishes that you release this three years after I died. That's the standard okay. report, mm-hmm. and I'm just so glad that it's not part of the story. I'm glad it's not in the book, and I'm glad it's not in the movie because yeah. it reduces everything about that I think is strong to nothing. Um, I wow. I don't even know if we need to get into what the solution I'd, is. I'd almost but... prefer that you not, you know. Because okay, then I let's feel not like... do it. Yeah, because... if you want it, listener, go find it. If you yeah. don't, and I don't think you need to, don't do it. It's it's junk. Well, it's not even think... satisfying. Right. It's just junk. And and you know I can't necessarily even fault an author for composing a draft and saying, okay, let's just see where this goes, because especially for a story that is written on this kind of impulse this kind of spiritual you know you know this kind of propelled force of feeling and intuition um you know maybe she sat down and and kind of let the muse move her and this is what came out so yeah she wrote it but is it definitive is it really part of the story i mean she's never officially tacked it on and uh unlike maybe Charles Dickens and Great Expectations and how he changed the ending in response to public sentiment. It's never been put forth as the solution. So uh, I would say it's it's a, a wisely discarded draft that, you know, she acknowledges it's there. Make of it what you will, but I prefer to live in oblivious ignorance of all that. <laughs> yep, exactly. I, I do too. Um, do you know it? I do not know. I have no okay, idea. Okay, then then I'm going. glad I didn't say anything about it. And you can, you know, again do what you want with it. It just it just it, you you can tell that it was an attempt to try to make some sense of this mysterious incident, but it's it's class A exhibit number 1 of why sometimes you don't need to know and that makes it stronger and better. And sometimes I mean, you just leave well enough alone, you know. Yeah, just, and just... ambiguity is a good thing and in, in many cases, uh, um, you know, if, if this were in there, it would 
it would just completely suck away all of your, you know, I wouldn't have stayed up the night that I watched it. Because <laughs> the film forces you to think about these things and, and to it, grapple with them and to make sense of it in your own world where having a pat ending just doesn't do that. doesn't work the same way. So... So there we are. There's some stuff out there. And Peter Weir himself even had an ending to the film that, you know, was probably similar to Joan Lindsay and the way you presented it, at least, David. Of Let's see if we can make this work to get something in there and wisely discarded that, too. The idea yeah. just like, no, we don't need it. This is a film about not knowing and about what that means to to us who are still stuck in this world not knowing an awful lot of stuff <laughs> yeah, about and, our experience. And for the for the viewer or for the reader who finds themselves frustrated at this lack of resolution, I mean, I guess there's a a moment to reflect on, well, why do you why do you need that explanation and 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 what what's the point of forcing the issue there? Uh, because you're right, you, you just have to acknowledge there are just many mysteries that will remain and endure well beyond our lifetime and beyond <laughs> whatever happens after after this life. Uh, you know, not not everything that happens is known, and and not every event has an explanation that that makes rational sense. And and you know, just coming to grips with that, I think, is a very important aspect of becoming a mature human being. So. A film like this kind of you know puts that in front of us and and reminds us that it doesn't always have to be a Hollywood ending. In fact, a lot of those endings are often just tacked on. I mean, we've even talked about that some of our some of our you know some of those older films, especially from the 30s and 40s, where the plots go into sometimes dark or ambivalent directions, and then all of a sudden, ta-da! Here's the wrap up, and you recognize it's studio pressures or conventional tastes that force that ending. So you almost want to. You know, you want to edit it out yourself because I'd rather live with the, you know, the the murkiness of the characters rather than how everything wound up happily ever after. So I appreciate a film that doesn't push that on us and says, you know, what, I'm just going to let it stand uh, in all of its uh, ambivalent glory. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that there's just a lot of things that we're never going to know here. And this film is also a good reminder that it doesn't mean that 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 they're not worth grappling with still. That, you know, there are things that we'll never know the answer to, but we can still think about them. We can still... Um, and enjoy them on their own terms. Wrestle with them. As, mm -hmm. as, as mysteries, as puzzles, as dilemmas, as even, you know, even even in their agony. I mean, of course, we do want to know what happened to those girls in a human sense. We don't want their bodies just rotting out there in the wilderness or or thinking that maybe they've they've gone somewhere else and assumed a new identity or are living a life uh, radically different than what they seem to be destined for. I mean, any of those possibilities are still existing out there, yeah. Or have simply disappeared from this awful world that they were in they just, and have somehow landed somewhere else. Yeah, Who knows where? They, they've dissolved. You <laughs> Some know, other plane of existence. <laughs> evaporated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Botticelli's Venus has ascended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that was... A, I, I enjoyed that, David. I've, I've yeah. been wanting to talk about this movie for, you know, a couple of years now. I'm glad that we were able to sit down and do it. I hope listeners enjoyed our conversation and, and you know, don't don't let this be the end of it. Um, I'd love to hear some feedback, to hear your comments about, you know, what are your thoughts on the film? It's... it's, it's uh, 
it's unsatisfying but perfectly satisfying um, ending. <laughs> and you know, just in general, uh, please let us know how how you how you responded to picnic hanging rock uh david anything anything as we kind of close up here today oh well you know we uh we have another episode of the eclipse viewer that'll be on its way soon we're going to be finishing up our two-part series on nikatsu noir kind of working out some uh technical and scheduling details with our good friend pablo canota our guest for the, that episode so we'll, that'll hopefully be coming up a little bit later this month um i've got my blog criterion reflections i've got uh uh, symbiopsychotaxoplasm is the next one on my on my uh, docket there. So I'm looking forward to uh, this kind of uh, be an encounter of a movie from uh, late 1968. Now, how many more do you have before 1969 rolls around? Well, I think that'll be the last of the main feature films, and then I've got a bunch of short films that I got to figure out how I'm going to cover those. Whether I'm going to do maybe one wrap up post, I've got a bunch of less blank films that came out that year. And a bunch of other little kind of short subjects that are kind of part of my timeline that I don't have exact release dates for. So uh, there'll be a, a couple more 68 posts at least, but uh, 69 isn't that far away. So we're about to <laughs> turn the corner into a new year of uh, Criterion Reflections blogging. Uh, it's always kind of fun for me to, I'm sure for you too, to see you knock off a year and, and move on. Not not that I want you to speed through it. I, I, I love... I love the your project. It's, yeah, it's kind of always taking nice. my leisurely time with I in between all the other podcasts and things I do. You know. Yep, and um, we will be back too with another episode of Criterion Cast soon. It's been on a little bit of a hiatus since you know we had a bunch of year end episodes and and just trying to figure some things out. But we've got some plans, so this is. Uh, uh, I'm excited to start the year out and uh, happy Valentine's Day to everybody. Um, won't be quite as uh, lovely here in the States in many places as it is down in Victoria in Australia <laughs> this time of year. I hope you um, all make it home after your Valentine's <laughs> Day outing, too. <laughs> um, yes, exactly. We, 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 we hope for the best. We love this mystery, but we're okay not having any more, <laughs> at least any, any real ones in our lives. So, um, listeners, uh, thanks so much. Uh, we'll see you when we come back. <laughs>